Okay, we're going to look at our scripture. Normally on Palm Sunday, I preach about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but I'm going to fast forward just a little bit, and I'm going to be preaching on the Last Supper uh, before uh, the crucifixion. And that can be found on the back of the bulletin, or it can also be found on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been redeemed, determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. The word of the Lord. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? Now, some of us, we conjure up this idea of the bucket list, right? There's even a movie about it, right? If you had one year to live, you pull out the bucket list and all the things you've been wanting to do, and you have a year to do them. But if you're going to die tomorrow, you don't have time for the bucket list, do you? You really only have time for one thing. So what would that one thing be in your life? My guess is that your answer would be, I want to be with the ones that I love, right? And isn't that interesting that Jesus is thinking the exact same thing? The difference being that Jesus knows that this hour has been appointed for him. It's not a mistake. It's not something that takes him by surprise. And yet he knows that tomorrow he's going to be crucified, and he desires in this time to be with his disciples. In fact, he says in verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Greek actually uh, translated would be, I have desired with much desire to eat this Passover with you. See, there are specific things that he still wants to show them and tell them. And God has orchestrated it so that he will be able to show them his love in the Passover meal. He's going to use this Passover meal to show who he is and where he is going. Jesus is 
bound up in the Passover meal. And the Passover meal marks two things. The end of the beginning, meaning God has come close in the person of Jesus Christ and is leaving, and also the beginning of the end. The inauguration of the new covenant, the final covenant, the turning of the corner, if you will, before God uh, comes back. This meal that Jesus gives in the Passover is not only for the disciples, it's for us as well. It gives us a chance to look into the mystery of Jesus' heart and to respond to his love for us. So what is it that Jesus wants to show us? He wants to show us two things. Number one, that Jesus is the true sacrifice. Jesus is the true sacrifice. And number two, that Jesus is the sufficient price. That Jesus' sacrifice is enough. So let's examine these points. Number one, that Jesus is the true sacrifice. It's Thursday uh, morning and It says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sends Peter and John to go make preparations for the Passover. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. The lamb has to be bought and slaughtered. Uh, The uh, bitter herbs and the pomegranate and the bread, all of it needs to be created. And there needs to be a place that they can have it, right? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, so where are they going to have the Passover? And all of this needs to happen before sundown. Now, if you'll remember, the Passover was a feast instituted by God to commemorate the Exodus, that God had placed his hand on a people, the Israelites, and called them his, and determined to lead them out of Israel, out of the land of slavery. And he sends these plagues upon the Egyptians. And the final plague is the killing of the firstborn of Egypt. And in fact, all would be killed. All the firstborn of any uh, race in the nation would be killed. But he tells the Israelites to put the blood on the door and the avenging angel will pass over the Israelites and God will free them. So the disciples say, where do you want us to prepare it? And Jesus replies, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you and follow him to the house and go into the house. And when he says, what what do you want? Say, our master needs, uh, where is the room where we can use the Passover? You know, these instructions, they're kind of like cloak and dagger, aren't they, right? You know, when you walk into a crowd, meet a man with a red hat and say, the skiing is great in St. Moritz. And if they respond a certain way, What's the deal with all of this? And the answer is, this is being done this way because of Judas. If you'll remember, Judas has already gone to the temple authorities and said, what will you give me to betray Jesus? And they've worked out a price, and it said that Judas was looking for an opportunity to hand him over. But it needed to be someplace away, right? Not in uh, the crowds, for the crowds would riot. And so what's going on here is Jesus still has things to say to the disciples, but he cannot let Judas know the location. And so he sends Peter and John. Jesus wants to show in the feast who he is. Jesus is the Passover lamb. 
There are several times in the scriptures, in the gospels, where Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God, right? Remember John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus for the first time, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament as the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Repeatedly throughout his ministry to the disciples, he has explained to them that he is going to be killed, that he is the ransom price. But they have not understood, right? Remember, Peter, when hearing this, said, absolutely not, and actually rebuked Jesus. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand. And so at this Passover meal, he's trying to explain to them, and they still don't understand, but they will the next day. Notice in verse 15, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover before I suffer. And in the Passover meal, he takes the elements, the bread and the wine, and says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Take and drink. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins for you. They can't understand what he's talking about still. So he's going to show them that he, in fact, is the Passover lamb. Isn't it interesting when you look at the various accounts of the Passover in the four Gospels, the lamb isn't talked about at all the physical lamb to eat. And why is that? It's because the lamb is sitting among them right now and is going to be sacrificed the next day. So for Jesus to show them that he is the Passover lamb, he must die when Passover lambs are slain. So Jesus, so the disciples might see that he is the true lamb. And so when are Passover lambs slain? They're slain at twilight, right before uh, uh, sundown. It doesn't exactly mean the same, but the actual time we know is between 3 and 5 p.m. And it would need to be a priest who would kill the lamb. And so all of these lambs would be going to the temple where they would be slaughtered in this period of time of 3 to 5 p.m. So the question we have is, how can Jesus eat the Passover meal the day before, and also be crucified when Passover lambs are slain. Remember, Jesus was arrested Thursday night. And we know that he spent all night in the court of Caiaphas, and the rooster crowed on the next morning on Friday, and they led uh, Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, and the priest said, "We, we can't go in because we want to eat the Passover. Well, wait a second. Hasn't the Passover already happened? Jesus ate the Passover. In fact, we know that Jesus' body was crucified and the body was taken down because the Passover uh, was about to begin. So what gives? We need to understand something about Israel. That the area of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, which was separated, Samaria was here and Judea was here, was very, very different than Judea. It was different uh, in terms of culturally. It was further away from Jerusalem. Racially, it was more mixed. 
In fact, politically, they even had different governors. And one other thing that was different between them is they kept time differently. See, Galilean Jews kept the day from sunrise to sunrise. But Judean Jews kept the day from sunset to sunset. Now, I've tried to get my hands around this because we keep our day from the middle of the night to the middle of the night. And I could go into all of this, but in the end, you're going to be just as confused as when I started. But suffice it to say, it was a good thing the priests agreed with them because there was no way they could slaughter all of the lambs from three to five. And so you had half the nation essentially celebrating the Passover the day before because of the time that they, the way that they reckoned the day. The Galilean Jews first, and then the Judean Jews second. So when was it that Christ was crucified? We know that it was about the sixth hour, which is 12 p.m., when darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour at 3 p.m., Jesus cried out, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus cried out again and gave up his spirit. See, it was around three o'clock, a little bit after that, that Jesus was killed. And the disciples, whether they were there watching the crucifixion or in the city, at that time would see tens of thousands of people with lambs leading them to the temple in order to sacrifice them for the Passover meal. I wonder how many of them at that time put two and two together, what Jesus had said the night before, and watching these lambs, one year old or younger, without spot or blemish, being led to the altar to be killed, would recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus orchestrated his death in such a way that they and we would know his purpose. Because Jesus is not a sacrifice. He's the sacrifice. Of all of those thousands of lambs being led to the altar, none of them could fully take away the sins of the people they represented. If God is infinitely holy, then God has an infinite hatred of sin. And if God has an infinite hatred of sin, only an infinite act of love is suitable to take it away. See, my friends, a Christ without a cross is not the Christ. All that Jesus was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. And you do not understand Christ till you understand his cross. And until you see the cross as that which is done by you, you will never be able to appreciate that it is done for you. If God went through such lengths, even changing the time in two different regions so that we would know who he is, dying after living a perfect life, it shows us that we need a sacrifice. 
So where's yours? You may say, I don't need one. I live a good life. I work hard. I keep my nose clean. Surely that's good enough. Not for an infinitely holy God, it isn't. Not for what we were made to be. See, God may forgive sinners, but he never forgives sin. Every single act of wrongness must be paid for. God is infinitely holy, but he's also infinitely loving. You may say, well, I'll choose a different sacrifice, right? I'll I'll do something. I'll live a good life. I'll give lots of money. I'll, I'll follow another path. But the scriptures are clear. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So we must recognize who Jesus really is. Was he a great teacher? Absolutely. Was he a holy man? Yes. But he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So receive him into your hearts as such, for that is the reason that he came. Jesus is the true sacrifice. Well, Jesus is not only the true sacrifice, he is the sufficient price. What does that mean? You know, I wonder what Jesus was thinking about the Passover. Remember, the Passover commemorates liberation from slavery. But the Passover was designed and the Exodus was designed to speak of a greater liberator, of one who was to come to set his people free from sin and condemnation, not just slavery from another foreign people. He participated in Passover year after year, and now was his time to finally explain to his disciples, this is what all of this means. So you need to understand a little bit of Passover. God commanded the Israelites to remember what happened, and each element of the Passover is charged with significance. And I can't go into all of the elements, but I want to just talk about one, that there are these four cups of wine or four drinks of wine that one takes throughout the supper at different places. And they're sort of the skeleton of the supper. And these four cups of wine or one cup with four different drinks and the cup changes its significance as the meal continues on signify four things that God promised he would do in Exodus 6 through 7. And so each of these cups has a different name. Let me read you Exodus 6, 6 through 7. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. That's the first. And I will deliver you from their bondage. That's the second. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. That's the third. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. That's the fourth. And so we actually see this. Look at verse 17, where it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourself. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
Okay, I always saw that. And then he tells them to drink again or take the cup again. Why is he telling them again? It's because this is the first cup. And this first cup is called by the Jews the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. What does sanctification mean? It means to be chosen, to be set apart, to be taken out of something. It's the cup of chosenness. Where God said to the Israelites, I have heard the groaning of my people. In other words, I've sympathized with it. I will act. I will set apart you and bring you out from slavery. Jesus is proclaiming a new exodus in the Last Supper. He's saying to his disciples and through them to all of us who are his people, who believe in him, that you are my people, that I have come and chosen you to bring you out of sin and death. Look at verse 29. Actually, I don't think you have 29 where Jesus says, and I assigned you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Just like Jesus told the Israelites, I'm going to bring you out and lead you to a promised land, a land of abundance where you will be safe. Jesus is saying to the new nation of his people that I will bring you to the promised land of heaven. I will bring you to be with me, the cup of sanctification. Now, Jesus doesn't speak. We don't see in Uh, The narrative here, the second cup, but I want to talk about it because it's important. It's called the cup of deliverance or the cup of plagues. It comes from uh, Jesus saying, I will deliver you from their bondage. And remember how God delivered the Israelites. He's sent these plagues, these punishments upon Egypt. You know, you remember the blood of the Nile, and then the plague of the frogs, and then the plague of the hail, which came down and destroyed uh, tons of stuff, and then the locusts that came and decimated the produce, so much so that by the end, the entire land was destroyed. And then, of course, the final plague, the killing of the sons. Jesus then, in verse 20, speaks of the third cup, and this is... uh, Uh, the one we see here where Jesus says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, he said, take this cup that is poured out for you. It is the new cup or the new covenant, excuse me, in my blood. This third cup that Jesus is holding that we will celebrate in just a little bit at the communion table is called the cup of redemption. Where God says in Exodus, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. In other words, God is saying, as Jesus is saying, it's not by your actions that you are redeemed, but it's by mine. It's by my efforts. Us, like the Israelites, could do nothing about the penalty of sin on our heads. It's by the actions of God. Now, what does the word redeem mean? 
It means to buy something back. So if there was a slave and you wanted to buy that slave, there was a price set on them. And it literally was called the redemption price. To redeem them from slavery, you needed to pay a price, a redemption price or a ransom price. The cup of redemption, Jesus holds up to his disciples and to us. He's saying to them, don't remember what I've done in the past, but remember what I am going to do for you tomorrow. Because what is the cost to redeem us from sin? He says it right here, right? The new covenant in my blood. How did he redeem the Israelites in Egypt? By placing punishment on the Egyptians and then finally on the lamb. You know, why, didn't, why did God set up that there needed to be a Passover lamb in the first place for the Israelites, right? Why didn't he just do, you know, the thing where it just killed all of the Egyptians? The reason is, and God even says, I didn't bring you out of the land because you were any better than they were, but rather because I have chosen you and set my affection on you. And so there is a price on their heads. And in that instance, it was the lamb that paid the price. But what is the cost to redeem us from our sin? It's not a punishment that he can place on anyone else, can he? We're all guilty. We're all in the same boat. See, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. And so God chose to punish himself. The cup, when it's generally referred to in the Old Testament, in numerous places, is almost always called a cup of judgment. See, Jesus is the one who the next day on Calvary will drink the cup of plagues, will drink the cup of judgment. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. It's later that night in the Garden of Gethsemane that the disciples will overhear Jesus praying to his father, and what does he say? If there's any way possible, God, Father, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering, yet not as I will, but as you will. In other words, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to redeem my people. But if there is another way, please. In this new covenant, this covenant of redemption, he inaugurates a new covenant. We read about it just a little while ago in the praying the scriptures. When they heard these words, the new covenant, the disciples would have hearkened back to Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. The covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. God made a covenant with the Israelites. The Mosaic law was given. But that law was predicated on their obedience. Obey my laws. 
and you will continue to experience my blessing. It was a conditional covenant. There was a price that the Israelites had to pay, faithfulness. But they were not faithful, and God withdrew his favor and presence. But Jesus is saying, this new covenant that I make, it won't be like that covenant, the covenant that could be broken. Because this is the covenant that I will make, that I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, not just on tablets of stone to look at, but rather in a transforming way that changes me from the inside out. No longer shall one teach his neighbor and his brother say, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, and I will remember their sins no more. See, in this covenant, what do we hear? I will put my law with them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. It's an unconditional covenant. A price paid to enter into it, not by us, but by Jesus. A redemption price. As Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is in this new covenant, the blood that is shed in Jesus Christ, that we are free. We are redeemed. Made me think of my Honda. I don't know if you know much about my Honda. It's a Honda Ridgeline. It's a black truck. Kind of looks like a TIE fighter. That's why I got Darth Vader on the back. My Honda was at one time totaled before I had it. What does totaled mean? It pretty much means good for nothing. Irredeemable. It can't be fixed. And you know what happens to totaled vehicles? They can't go on the road anymore. They're sent to the junkyard, right? Or they wither away under the elements. That was its destiny. Forgottenness and rust. But there was this guy who saw something in my Honda that no one else did. And he drove to that impound lot before it could be taken into that junkyard. And he paid a price. He redeemed it out of its captivity, if you will. He liberated it and fixed it and brought it out and made it well so that it could do what it was meant to do. So the question I have for you is how much are you worth? What's the price tag to redeem you from forgottenness? What's the price tag to choose you and to give you freedom? Well, the world will say it's, I guess, my job, my salary, whatever it is that I can produce that sets my value. But that's not what God says. God says the price that you are worth is the life of the Son of God. That while Jesus was on the cross, you were literally on his mind. That he was paying for your sins if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is not only the true sacrifice, he is the sufficient price. So we can say, as Romans 8.1 says, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not slaves of sin, but rather children of God. There is no price on our head anymore. There is no wrath from our Father. So we can now live in freedom from guilt. But he also gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to begin to live a freedom from, in freedom from sin. It's power over us. How shall we respond to such a great gift? Is there any higher purchase price than the life of the Son of God? I have to close with this because I'm running out of time. You know, there was a fourth cup, right? I talked about three. But the fourth cup comes when it says, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. The fourth cup is often called, it's called the cup of praise or the cup of acceptance. I find it very interesting that in a marriage betrothal as well, there is a cup of acceptance. See, the man that wants to marry this woman, he takes a cup and he drinks from it. And then he takes it to his prospective bride. And if the bride receives it and drinks from it, it is her way of responding and saying, what do you want to do in my life? I want to have done. We will have the opportunity at the communion table in just a little bit to drink that cup of acceptance. But we have opportunity throughout our days in our life to drink the cup of praise. No sacrifice is needed anymore for our sin. But what we can offer to God is a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name. As we endeavor and seek in word and deed to proclaim the love of Jesus Christ and his greatness in how we live. See, we praise him not because we have to, but precisely because we don't. We love him. We obey him because he loved us. So during this uh, week, my encouragement to you to think about the cups and to respond with the fourth cup, a cup of praise. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice and Jesus is the sufficient price. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that in the Passover supper, we see the enormity of your love, that you are the lamb that takes away the sin of your people and your gift and your offer of your life for ours is for all who would call upon your name. I pray for each one of us within earshot, whether online or here in this place, that they would respond to your offer of love for what you have done 
for you are the one that sets us free. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.